You're listening to the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. On the show today, we had Ben Eltham join us to talk about federal politics. Then we spoke with Nick Horn, the son of the late, great Donald Horn. Donald Horn was a public intellectual and famously known as the author of The Lucky Country. Nick joined me to talk about a new book that he's put together called Donald Horn Selected Writings, and it's out through La Trobe University Press. Then finally, I spoke with director Ella Caldwell, and actor Ben Prendergast from Red Stitch Actors Theatre to talk about their new play called Incognito, which really explores the human mind and how we create meaning and identity. Yes, you are listening to 3RRFM and tuned in to Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. And uh, as promised, we have Ben Eltham in the studio who has come in very kindly to talk about federal politics. Hi, Ben. Good morning, Amy. How are you? Morning. Good. I've been getting all G'd up with the music this morning. Yeah, yeah. Good mix so far, mate. Thanks. It's good fun. Good to hear the new Gold Class song. Yeah. uh, I just can't wait to go through all of their new releases. It's going to be awesome. Gee, those guys rock hard. Totally. Um, that'll be that would be a good one to see live, actually. Oh, for sure! Can't wait. Yeah. Um, so, Ben, <laughs> moving from music to politics, such an easy segue to make. Um, let's talk about some of the things that have been happening in in the last week in politics, and it's been quite varied and a bit of a roller coaster. Uh, first of all, let's just for continuity's sake from last show uh, when we we got off air, uh, it was about I don't know ten o'clock. We only had one Green Senator uh, (laughs) resign (laughs) because of dual citizenship, but Larissa Waters that day, that very afternoon, had the same thing happened. I mean, Ben. (laughs) Yeah, what a mess. What a terrible week for the Greens. I mean, we were already saying it was a bad week for the Greens last week and then they lost their other deputy leader. (laughs) So um, disastrous week for the Greens. And um, I think real scrutiny now on the leadership of Richard Di Natale um, where are the Greens going? Uh, how can they recover from this double blow? I mean, very, very difficult moment for them to lose. Really the future talent of the party. I mean, as we discussed last week, Ludlam, obviously a much-loved figure amongst mm. the Greens' base, the party base. Um, and similarly for Larissa Waters, uh, a very popular senator up in Queensland. Um, Queensland's never been a good state for the Greens. They've always struggled to get people elected up there. She was really the, the guiding light of the party up in Queensland. She'd been very strong on the Carmichael Mine, on the Barrier Reef, um, on issues like women in the workforce. Yeah. Um, and so to lose her just like that, poof, gone, yeah, yeah not great. And so... Um, yeah, a lot of rebuilding is going to be required for the Greens now at the federal level. Well, you're right. It is the two deputy leaders. I mean, how much leadership do they have left in terms of, you know, people having served a substantial time in Parliament and has that policy now? Well, I think they will have some leadership. I mean, obviously, Diotali is still there. Yeah, so Sarah they've still Hansen got, Young. Sarah Hansen Young's an experienced senator. Rachel Seward from Western Australia has been excellent on the Centrelink robo debt stuff and, and generally on social policy. Mm. So, um, Janet she, Rice. Janet Rice has not set the world on fire, I would argue, as the Victorian <laughs> senator. She's still stable, like, you know, a kind of solid performer though in the sense that she's very thoughtful she's thoughtful she's contributed on policy issues um you know i I don't think she'd be in the frame for deputy leader 
Um, look, I expected to go to Rachel Seward, but we'll yeah. see. Um, Hanson Young's a polarising figure in the party. She's not well liked. A little bit like Larry Annan, who we can definitely agree <laughs> will not be the deputy leader. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, I think the bigger problem for the Greens is, firstly, the you know, what to do in the immediate term about these two senators. Um, it looks as though Jordan Steele-Young that we talked about last week yeah. will put his hand up to run for the Senate and um, that would mean that he would probably get elected in Ludlam's place and I think that's very welcome. He's mm. a 22-year-old with a disability so that's, a you know, an excellent person to get into our federal parliament. Um, and, of course, Andrew Bartlett in Queensland. So they will have some talent coming into the party, but I think this, the broader issue is what is the direction of the Greens? How are they going to respond to this challenge? But also where do they go in the medium and longer term? Are they going to continue to be a party of the left and continue to fight for those kind of issues that we expect the Greens to fight for, environmentalism, climate change, refugees, social policy, those kind of issues? Where do they stand on the big picture economic issues of the day, inequality, tax reform, things like this? And how will they respond to a Labor Party that's clearly positioning itself in a more progressive, more left kind of position than it has for many years? And I think that's the real big challenge for the Greens. If Bill Shorten moves the Labor Party to the left in a more sort of Jeremy Corbyn kind of direction... Um, then I think Labor could take a lot of votes off the Greens. Mm, it's one of those fascinating developments, really, that, uh, you know, they're taking some cues from the UK situation uh, and noticing that, obviously, the, the movements of Brexit and the election of Trump signal many things, one of them being um, that inequality is rising and that people are very aware of it, they're feeling it and they see it. It's very visible too. Um, And one of those issues that has been, I guess, highlighted this week and where Bill Shorten has been positioning Labor is around tax reform. And uh, as we know, Labor was out there pushing for superannuation tax concessions, um, changing those, sorry, and, uh, and reducing them, and also looking into negative gearing and capital gains. And now we've got them flagging that they'll be releasing policies in a couple of days on trusts, um, which they say, you know, very few people can access and therefore if you have disparities between people uh, in, in the pay-as-you-go tax system versus using trusts, then it's it also has an inequity uh, inbuilt into the tax system and that they were going to come out with a holistic approach, which is also quite rare in tax reform. We'll have to wait and see. But Ben, with this kind of new positioning that you're mentioning uh, that Labor's really coming forward on, do you think they've heard, they've listened and realised, well, now is the opportunity to actually establish ourselves and have a very clear differentiation between us and the coalition? Because they do obviously have moments of bipartisanship, for example, immigration. Yeah, good question, Amy. Um, I think that the Labor Party has been surprisingly progressive on substantive tax and transfer policy issues now for a while. You know, under Chris Bowen, they put a surprisingly progressive tax policy package together for the last election. You'd have to say, though, since 2016, they've been skating a little bit. They haven't unveiled any new policies 
um, in the last year of opposition. And so this obviously signals the next tranche of Labor policy rollouts. And we should be careful not to talk too much about it because it hasn't been announced yet. But yeah, clearly they are signalling that they're going to try and do a, a crackdown on trusts. And trusts are pretty much the most notorious tax shelter going around. Um, they're particularly favoured by very high net wealth individuals and their families. And of course, family trusts in particular allow very rich people to share their income out amongst members of their family and therefore hide from tax. Uh, Australia doesn't have an inheritance tax either. So there's it's very easy for wealthy people in Australia to pass their wealth down onto the next generation. And of course, that's a key method for sustaining inequality, for mm. making sure inequality continues. You know, I think that's not going to solve any big problems straight away, but it'll certainly bring in tax revenue for the ATO. And of course, that enables Labor then to address some of the inequality issues on the other side of the ledger, along with, say, low income workers, you know. And, and I think that's where things are really biting for ordinary Australians, that if you're down in the middle and the lower income tiers of the, of the sort of tax share or of the income distribution, then you're seeing very low wage growth. Uh, wage growth's been very low, bumping along the bottom really for three or four years now. And of course, at the same time, uh, prices for things like housing are going up and up and up. And that's where the squeeze is coming. Definitely. And then we've had a, a bit of a response. It's really without a, a f- solid policy announcement, we've mainly seen Chris Bowen and Scott Morrison kind of coming at each other um, with a range of ideological viewpoints, um, mainly Scott Morrison. But he, he went on Radio National uh, yesterday to say that Bill Shorten has, quote, given up on growth in the economy uh, because apparently growth is all about tax cuts for big business and not a lot else, uh, which obviously then will lead to wages increasing. Can you sense my sarcasm. So, um, you know, this is the whole economic debate that we get stuck in, which is, you know, growth is good. Unbridled growth is good if we can get it, but only through various means that don't involve increasing taxes or distributing uh, taxes and also income fairly. You know, can we get past this, do you think? Uh, it's going to be hard for the coalition to get past that, I think. I mean, this, this is the same old trickle-down argument that has been discredited now for years. I think you're right, Amy. I mean, we are right to be cynical about that kind of argument. We've had economic growth for 26 years, Un, unchecked economic growth. So I, don't, I haven't mm. had a recession since 1991. Um, and yet, you know, I think there'd be a lot of Australians out there who'd say the economy's not exactly crash hot right now. Now, employment is growing, jobs are being added to the economy, um, but we know that there's all sorts of problems, uh, for example, for workers not getting paid their proper wage. We saw another prosecution of a 7-Eleven this week. You know, so there's some systemic issues going on in our labour market. And I think there's a bigger problem here too. You know, this is something that faces a lot of the industrialised, advanced economies is that productivity growth is not getting passed on to workers. So companies are continually improving their profits, improving their productivity, but the money is not going to the ordinary guys doing the work on the shop floor, you know, or in the offices. The money is going to the owners of those companies, Mm. in other words, to capital. Shareholders. Yeah, shareholders, exactly. And so you see the stock market's going very well. Profits are a record high. Wages are low. 
Um, and that's that signals a market failure, I would argue. So whether Labor has an answer for those big picture issues, I think that's actually an open question. But mm. they're certainly going to start to tinker around the edges of some of the very big tax concessions that wealthy people get in this country and not before time. Mm. And we have seen, I mean, that neoliberalism finally has been more widely discredited um, and that is that trickle-down economics, one aspect of. Um, but... I mean, can we look at uh, Labor and think perhaps this is the starting point of a pivot away from the overly centrist kind of nature that they've they've come to, or do you think they're really still going to be really a party of the centre? That's a really good question. You know, I I think it's there are strong structural reasons for Labor not to go too far left, okay? And the main reason is they can still pick up all those green votes via the preference system. So, you know, roughly 80% of Greens votes flow back to Labor through second preferences. Um, and, of course, if they want to win the election, they also have to convince all of those centrist voters out there in the outer outer suburbs, the marginal electorates, um, those voters have to vote Labor. And so Labor has to balance always those two imperatives, appealing to the centre ground but also keeping their base. Mm. And so, you know, while while I expect Labor to to continue to try and seize the policy initiative, because that's good politics anyway, um, I think we should be cautious about forecasting a brave new world of leftist Labor Corbynist <laughs> policies under Bill Shorten and Chris Bowen. I'm not seeing any evidence no, for that. No, not overnight socialists by any means. No, I don't think so. Um, and one other thing that Bill Shorten has uh, come out with is a suggested reform, and it's he's not the first one to put it forward, but uh, to change our federal uh, parliamentary election terms from three years to four years, um, this probably would be widely... I guess, respected or, you know, welcomed by many voters who are sick of being constantly campaigned to, would it make that much of a difference? Well, I don't think it would, actually. Um, So my view on four-year terms is I'm against them. I would rather have more democracy than less democracy. So three years is a reasonably long time. Um, Okay, in Britain it's five years, in the US it's four years. But still a lot can happen in three years. Mm, as we see. Um, as we've seen over the <laughs> yeah. last six years, you know. Uh, you know, before the major parties go to a four-year term, I'd like to see them last a four-year term mm. with the same Prime Minister. You know, that would be a really <laughs> good start, you know. Show us that you guys can get a whole four years on your own before going to voters and saying, hey, we need four-year terms. Yeah, that's a that's a significant challenge you've thrown down there, Ben. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not sure if they can meet that KPI. We'll have to see because we've seen a lot of uh, not gossip but a bit of hard speculation around here about uh, Credlin and Abbott meeting in European countries plotting a coup, which hardly seems likely given Tony Abbott's actual position within the Liberal Party. Oh, I'm sure they're plotting. Um, Will it be successful? Yeah, whether they've got the numbers to actually follow through on this conspiracy, I doubt it very much. Yeah, exactly. Um, As we talked about last week and the week before, I think um, the, the hardliners in the Liberal Party have lost. They're now on the outer. The moderates are in charge. They've entrenched their position in the party hierarchy. Turnbull and Sinodinus and Simon Birmingham and Mitch Fifield, these are the guys now who are in charge of the Federal Liberal Party and I don't think they're letting go anytime soon. Mm. So... 
But do you think now that uh, we've seen a, a true and proper confirmation that this new uh, home office portfolio will exist, is that a concession to the right wing? Yes, it is a concession to the right wing. And obviously to Peter Dutton, the man who will become the home minister, um, and that looks like that's going ahead. So mm. the government's announced that. They seem pretty keen on it. Um, there'll be obviously a ministerial reshuffle to accommodate that. Um, and yes, we expect Dutton to be given this new title of Minister of Home Affairs or something along those lines. And he will then get to control, obviously, not just immigration and the border force, but also ASIO and the federal police. So a very significant, big domestic portfolio that will be given to Peter Dutton. Exactly. And we've seen um, outgoing president of the Australian Human Rights uh, Commission, Gillian Triggs, come out in in the last couple of days talking about the importance of the separation of powers and the power of the judiciary to be able to make independent judgments. And she believes that all of these developments uh, around national security truly are starting to impinge upon the separation of powers. Do you think this is a, a serious concern? Well, there's no doubt that the separation of powers has slowly been whittled away by the executive, by the bureaucracy and also by the cabinet itself over the last probably 30 years, I I would say. Um, And we've seen that trend continue under the Abbott and Turnbull governments. So increasingly muscular uh, bureaucratic apparatuses like the, you know, immigration department really turning into a kind of paramilitary with the border force. Um, we've seen ASIO, for example, um, get all all these new powers, a raft of new powers, um, including the right to check everyone's email and phone records. Um, and of course, there is some judicial oversight over this kind of activity, uh, but it's certainly not strong and robust judicial oversight, in mm. my opinion. No. And ministerial discretion has become a significant aspect of the last few years. Oh, probably since Tampa, ministerial yeah. discretion has been a big part of the immigration portfolio. So the Migration Act gives the immigration minister all sorts of personal power to pardon or to make decisions over individual migrants and asylum seekers. Mm. Um, that's baked into the system now. Um, and the Attorney General obviously has a whole bunch of powers vested in that office as well. You know, and I just make the further point that the Australian Constitution being a sort of mix of the British and the US system, we don't have a true separation of powers between the legislature and the executive anyway, because obviously um, in a parliamentary system where the executive is the cabinet and it's made up of the governing party, therefore the legislature and the executive are inherently fused anyway. So, Mm. you know, we have a weak separation of powers in those two aspects to begin with. Mm. Hence the importance of the judiciary, really. Yeah, I think we still have a strong and independent judiciary, so Mm. let's not get too worried. No, but I I just think that Gillian Triggs raises an excellent point, which is that, you know, we, we can't be complacent. No, and I think she's talking from her own personal experience there. Of course, the Human Rights Commissioner is a quasi judicial position. And under Gillian Triggs, we saw the government mount a long-term campaign to attack her both personally and also the independence of her position and indeed the agency itself. So, I mean, the government has been 
very, very diligent in winding back human rights protections, you know, which is interesting for a party that calls itself the Liberal Party. You know, it's mm. been reasonably against many freedoms, uh, particularly freedoms of things like uh, movement and freedoms of seeking asylum, you know, which, of course, are things that Australia has signed up to on international treaties. Yes, well, we have signed up to so many treaties, but uh, how many of them have been ratified? I always wonder about that. Uh, well, the UN Convention on Refugees is ratified by is, Australia. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's quite striking that uh, we seem to be remo- moving so far away from the initial intention. Honoured in the breach. You know? And then we've seen recently, in fact, yesterday, the UN Human Rights Commissioner, the UNHCR, come out and say that Australia has basically broken an agreement. Um, they said that as part of the deal that we had stitched up with the US government in the dying days of the Obama administration for the US to take many refugees from Manus and Nauru, Mm. um, that Australia would take some of them as well. Now, this has never been admitted to by the Australian government and they continue to deny that that agreement was reached. Um, But it seems strange to me that the UNHCR would come out now for this particular moment and point it out if it wasn't the case that the Australian government had actually signed up to something like that. It is quite a surprising development um, that, as you say, the UN Commissioner, Filippo Filippo Grandi, um, said that... uh, Basically, we agreed to to actually support the Australian government and this deal only on the understanding that vulnerable refugees who had family in Australia would be allowed to settle in Australia, which does make a lot of sense. Uh, and that uh, even more interestingly, they've been saying that we met personally with Peter Dutton, the Immigration Minister, and had those conversations and assurances from him about it. Is That is quite surprising that there would be such a disconnect or disparity in terms of the versions of events and hardly um, believable that the UN would decide to make anything up on this. Well, you're right, Amy. Who are you going to believe in this case? Are you going to believe the UN, uh, the impartial player here, the the relatively powerless international body that has uh, very little say in what goes on? Or would you believe the Australian government, which has a long record of systematically covering up the truth when it comes to immigration matters, with banning journalists from attending uh, refugee immigration detention facilities, all the things that the government has done to try and make the offshore detention system as opaque as possible, you know, uh, the fact that they refuse to comment about on-water matters. I mean, we could go on and on and on. So who would you believe in this case? I mean, I'm going to believe Filippo Grande, not yeah, Peter Dutton. Exactly. And um, we are kind of winding up the offshore detention, at least, um, you know, is it Manus or Nauru? I keep forgetting. Well, Ma- Manus is closing. That's right. It's, it's been ruled to be unconstitutional by the PNG Supreme Court. And that's Court. meant to be happening October, November. They've that turned is... the power off, I believe. You know, yeah. like they're now encouraging. To be fully closed. Yep, it's going to be closed. It must be closed under PNG law. Yeah. You know, so what will happen to these asylum seekers, we still don't know. I think it's terrible that they've been left in limbo, but of course it's terrible what's happened to them already exactly. under our care. And there is a fundamental contradiction here, I think. It's worth pointing out. As Filippo Grande told the ABC just yesterday, there's a fundamental contradiction here between saying we're doing this to save people's lives, to stop them from drowning in boats, um, and then just letting them rot in a jail for four years. You know, um, 
if we believe in people's welfare, then it's a our responsibility to do something about their welfare. And, you know, nobody believes the Australian government's line that this is all a matter for PNG or for Nauru. I mean, we know mm-hmm. that these these places are paid for by the Australian government. They're set up by the Australian government. They're run essentially by contractors paid by the Australian government. I mean, I could go on and on. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's coming to a crunch now and, and I don't think the government has a plan B. They're hoping that the US takes all of these asylum seekers and if they don't, I think we're going to see um, some some terrible things happen. Well, we haven't seen anyone... More um, terrible things. Yeah, exactly. And looking back on it, um, it's going to be quite frightening. I th- it already is frightening for a lot of people, but I don't think it's really hit home for some who have kind of... It's been out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, and while we're on asylum seeker policy, I mean, mm. the thing that really gets to me about it, after covering it for 15 years for New Matilda, 16 years for New Matilda now nearly... Um, is what it's done to the Australian polity, if you like, the way that it's degraded and dissolved many of the freedoms and rights and responsibilities that the Australian government used to take on. You know, the fact that Australia used to be seen as a, a world leader in asylum seeker and refugee policy, that we used to be seen as a nation that did our share of dealing with these global problems. And and the fact that we used to have a, a very well-developed system of human rights in this country, whereby people who came to our shores were offered protection, where they were genuine refugees. And you have to say that we've gone... We've gone away from that, you know. Mm. All of that's gone by the wayside in the last decade. And I think that's actually now eroding much of the the good workings of the Australian public service. So if you look at what's happened to the Immigration Department, it's been militarised, you know, um, and and, and that's sort of flowing through now into this Home Affairs Ministry, which itself will be quite militarised. So I think these are worrying signs. You know, we are sliding down a slippery slope and that's a real concern for me. It is a concern and it used to be a humanitarian issue and uh, as you say now, it's it's really largely about terrorism and national security, which to be honest, you can't, you know, draw those links so closely between migration, which is just people coming in to work or live here and, and those kind of issues. No, you can't. The statistics don't back that up. Um, really that's just a talking point for conservatives Mm. and for right-wing shock jocks. But the data just doesn't back up that point. Um, And, of course, we'd still have homegrown terrorists in this country as well. So, you know, I think while we're talking about terrorism too, the point needs to be made. There hasn't been a lot of terrorism in Australia. You know, while we must acknowledge that there are indeed security threats and, you know, I would never be someone to say there's, it's, it's all a hoax or all a lie. Mm. Um, you have to put it in proportion. You know, what are the pressing security threats to the future of Australia? I think they're probably things like climate change. They're probably the risk of a major war in East Asia, perhaps between America and China. You know, that would be catastrophic, you know. Um, I would think I think they're much North bigger Korea. problems. <laughs> North Korea is a bit of a worry. Yeah, a little um, bit. These are much bigger problems than asylum seekers. Yes, and um, just on a, a bit of a slightly amusing note, Ben, to lighten the things up a little, uh, we've seen a bit of a brainwave from Peter Dutton, one of his many contributions, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is the idea of a postal. Pl- 
plebiscite on marriage equality, um, which sounds so exciting, the idea of posting in a vote on something which will be non-binding. Sounds like an excellent way to (laughs) utilise taxpayer funds. (laughs) Why on earth are we still talking about plebiscites, Ben? Well, I guess we're still talking about plebiscites because the issue is still a live one. We still don't have marriage equality in this in this country. So, you know, it's a terrible tale of how we got to here, full of lies and prevarications and second best options. Um, you know, really, I think the, the best option would be simply for the parliament to pass marriage equality. Mm. That's clearly popular. Um, we don't need a plebiscite for all the other complex social issues that we legislate on every day. Um, you know, the gay and lesbian community said that they didn't want a plebiscite because they were worried about the hatred and the intolerance that such a plebiscite would stir up in the community. You yeah. know, and I think we still need to take that view seriously. That's the one coming from the people most affected. Mm. Um, and finally, of course, as you point out, it's non-binding. So any plebiscite would not actually force the parliamentarians yeah. to vote that way. It's an opinion poll, which we already know the answer to. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, and I did actually see fr- on a clip from Sky News, which was floating around Twitter, uh, that there was, I can't even remember the coalition member who was on that panel, but uh, they did raise the question around assisted dying and euthanasia and uh, whether they thought there needed to be a conscience vote or a plebiscite on that. And of course, we'd have a conscience vote in Parliament on that issue and therefore highlighting the huge disparity or ridiculous nature that we would then need a plebiscite for same-sex marriage. Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? Um, I mean, I think it's very interesting what's happening in Victoria with the assisted dying bill going through now. Uh, Of course, um, people who work in that industry or people who understand a bit about what the bill says um, will know that it's a very, very limited assisted dying bill and it will only cover a very, very small set of people. So most people... Um, who might possibly want to look at assisted dying um, in the end stages of their life will definitely not be allowed to do so by this bill. Um, But having said that, of course, it is an incremental reform Mm. and I suppose we have to welcome it in that respect. Indeed. And there has been quite a lot of pushback from the medical profession, obviously wanting to make sure that we're as risk averse as possible in such a serious area. Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny, isn't it, that kind of thing coming from the medical profession Mm. because in other respects they can be fairly blasé about medical malpractice and mistakes that go on in hospitals that kill lots and lots of people. Um, Look, I I don't think we should minimise the concerns of, of... of medical practitioners about this bill, but you know, let's let's be frank about what it legislates for. It's for a very very small number of people likely to be able to take advantage of it. Um, you'll need three different sets of um, approvals for it, I believe. The checks and balances are the strongest in the world, is my mm-hmm. understanding, and will rule out whole classes of people. So, anyone with dementia will not qualify for this. Um, many people with cancer even will not qualify for it because you have to be competent, as they say, and you have to be able to do it yourself. So, um, yeah, it's a very, very strong bill in terms of what it allows and what it restricts. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ben, thank you very much for generously giving your time today to okay. delve in a bit deeper this time into federal politics and a bit of state in the end. Thanks, um, Amy. Yeah. My pleasure and have a lovely week. Me too. Uh, That was Ben Eltham, National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, who comes in to talk about federal politics. 
You are listening to 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. This is Uncommon Sense. And as I've promised, uh, we have Nick Horn from uh, Sydney. He's up in Sydney, dialed in um, to talk about his late father, Donald Horn, and the book that he's put together, uh, which is called Donald Horn Selected Writings. And it's out through La Trobe University Press, uh, which is uh, in conjunction with Black Ink, uh, which is a Melbourne based publishing company. And uh, I'm really excited to chat about this uh, book because it brings together. Um, a beautiful uh, a range of, of writings from Donald, who um, many of you may know um, his most well-known work, um, The Lucky Country, which was a, a book that he wrote. But uh, there's so much more in this, including um, speeches and excerpts and parts of essays that he wrote for Quadrant. Um, and yeah, he's such a multi-talented man. So I'm very excited now to welcome uh, Nick Horn to the line. Hi, Nick. Yeah, morning, Amy, and, and what a what a terrific intro. Thanks morning. for Morning. That. No, that's my pleasure because um it just reading your uh, the the book that you've put together and it's masterfully edited. I've got to say, often that's an underrated skill, um, but it's certainly just brought to the fore to me uh, something that's really missing nowadays is this uh, not only wit and sharp, incisive. Um, yeah. you know, insights, but also just the ability to cut through in such yep. a, a, I mean, it's not simplistic, but it's just so well articulated in, in a very clear fashion. And I want to start out with um, your father, Donald, the man, because I think that will really open up um, some of the uniqueness of his writing, I guess. And then we can move into some of the, the chapters or the sections of the book that really highlight that. But first of all, as um, you know, the son of, of Donald Horn, um, you you write in your introduction, you used to call him D. That's um, right. Yeah, first it was Daddy, and then Daddy was um, was too immature, so it became D. D. That's really, really lovely. Um, and so, you know, growing up with um, Donald, uh, what was your experience of him as a person? And does does his personality is is what is shown in his writing really come through in the way he was with you and as a father? Yeah, I think so. I think what you what you read and, and what you see is, is what you get with him. Um, there was there was um, no real difference between the sort of public and private person. Uh, that's all true. Um, you know, of course, he was um, a terrifically knowledgeable person, so so a, sort of a, a great resource to have around. Um, and you know, of course, as a father, um, someone whom I, I loved. Um, so yeah, all of all of those sort of normal father son type things that were going on, but mm. sort of Donald also had. Um, this this public role, um, uh, you know, of course, which we were, we were all uh, sort of supportive of and proud of. Absolutely, an immense public role. Um, and you you talk about him being very knowledgeable. And in one of the first pieces in this book, he talks about the importance of school and uh, and the pursuit of knowledge, which really seems like something that may 
in Australian culture not necessarily be widely welcomed. Uh, and I wonder if his pursuit of knowledge and real public engagement um, was kind of bucking a bit of a trend. I mean, the, as he, he writes in this book, there are a lot of so-called public intellectuals and um, social theorists in Australia. But he, I think, to me, was a true public intellectual and, and pursued knowledge not as an end in itself, but as a way of um, of doing what was necessary, of saying what was needed, whether it was popular or unpopular. I mean, is that something that you particularly wanted to bring out in this book? And what, what are the kind of um, areas that you felt he really um, led on? Yeah, um, well, I, I, didn't want, I didn't want to frame the book um, in a way that people will, will think this is this is what it's all about. You know, I wanted that the writing is clear enough um, and readable enough um, and smart enough, um, sort of, to be appreciated without a lot of um, comments. So people people can read it and they can they can make their own judgments about it. But yeah, you're spot on about um, about the intelligence and the, the cutting through. And of course, he grew up in an, in an older Australia, um, also during the Depression, where there were lots of you know great things about Australia, um, sort of, you know, uh, a, a belief in the fair go, doing the right thing, love a family, all that sort of stuff. But there wasn't a great respect for um, learning, for intelligence. You know, sometimes you had to pretend to be more stupid than, um, than you were. You know, a lot of energy was wasted on pretending to be more stupid than you were. So he, he, he kind of bridges the gap between the older Australia and... Um, and sort of an Australia where um, intelligence is not seen as a crime, mm. you know, and, and a, an intelligence that can cut through is not seen as a crime. Absolutely. That's um, beautifully put. He he seemed like he did describe that his childhood in one um, in one part. I'm just trying to find the name. I think it was the education of young Donald, yep, um, yep. and and that was really illuminating for me. To it, it gave a real flavour and sense of what life was truly like in in that time yep. in the 1930s, and it it did bring a bit of not that I was around then, but there was a lot of nostalgia for some of what he was talking about. Um, his parents, which would be your grand parents and you're yeah, playing yeah. tennis in an afternoon yeah, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was just it seemed like life uh was quite different back then and yeah, well, yeah. no tv no social media yeah exactly so i guess human relationships um you know were naturally a lot more at the fore and certainly um you know between parents perhaps as well uh, and children sorry so I mean, let's talk about um, Donald and his progression through his life because also you say, as well as uh, Glyn Davis in his um, forward uh, essay, he, he talks about, I guess, the evolution of Donald Horn and his how he's evolved, um, how his views evolved and that he wasn't afraid to change his position when, you know, he had... Uh, found other evidence or had developed his own yeah. thinking around some th some key areas. So I just wanted, if you could, to talk about, um, you know, just across the years, how Donald Horn, yeah. the intellectual, and just the, the man himself did evolve. Yeah, well, it's um, it's an interesting question. And um, and first of all, I'd say there was, there was a well-established Donald sort of by the time he was seven. You know, people say... Give me the person at seven, and, and, and give me the, the or the person at seven, and, and, and I'll show you the the adult. Yeah. Um, 
and that was that was true with Donald. He he, he grew up in a kind of an idyllic, um, loving setting in in, in in rural New South Wales, um, loving parents, a father who'd um, sort of worked him, his way out of the out of the coal pits of of the Hunter Valley, um, and, and become a school teacher, uh, and inbred in or encouraged encouraged in Donald um, sort of innate love of learning. You talk about, uh, or you said, um, how he, he, he's not just a question of, of sort of um, learning for its own sake, but also of, of applying that learning to sort of social ends. And yes, he was that second part, but he, he was also the first part. He loved, he loved learning for its own sake. He loved reading. You know, he could, he, could, um, he, could, he could go to a movie and just enjoy the movie for itself. So it was a, a combination of, of appreciating uh, sort of knowledge for its own sake, but then also applying that to perhaps social ends. And, of course, whether that application to social ends is, is successful or not is, in a sense, kind of beyond your control. But um, as far as progressing intellectually goes, yeah, he had a, a big progression there. He, um, at high school, he was kind of left-wing Labor and then went to university and um, tried a few hats on, on, the, on the left and then settled on anarchism. <laughs> Yeah, and, yes. and then, then became a bit disillusioned with it all, and became um, not not so much conservative as anti-progressive. And he put the progressive in inverted commas because these silly progressives he saw it didn't understand that you can't you can change the world, but you can't understand how change in the world um, will eventuate. You, you might go in with good intentions, but it doesn't mean you're going to get good results. So he was in this kind of um, this period of, of anti, anti-progressivism in, in inverted commas for a while. And then he, um, he started editing a journal called The Observer. And this, this gave him a forum to um, sort of think about Australia, to, to, to write intelligently about Australia, and who knows, perhaps to influence mm. um, ideas. And then, of course, he goes to the bulletin, he writes Lucky Country, and sort of things take off. And uh, he, sort of, if you want to, complete the um, political evolution, he, he abandons um, the moniker of, of, of right-wing um, sort of in about 1970 and, and doesn't necessarily embrace the left, though he, he voted um, Labor uh, from 72 until, until his death. But he was never, he was never um, a great fan of, of politicians. Mm. Um, and when, when he'd fight, you know, he'd... He, he, It'd be like he like was cleaning his teeth. You know, you, you go and vote and you clean your teeth. It was the same kind of <laughs> commitment. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that's really interesting. Um, well, I guess also interesting that he, he started voting Labor at, at 1972 seems to be also a bit of an interesting um, point in time with uh, Gough Whitlam being around and um, certainly I'm not sure. What did he think about uh, Whitlam in particular? Um. Well, he he thought Whitlam's um, broad vision. You know, he thought he thought the modernisation of Australia um, was was something worth supporting, and so he was um, he was he was a a, a fan of Gough, um, not not a not a an apostle or anything like that. Because one of the one of the things about Donald was that he grew up thinking that none of the, the buggers who go into politics were much good, and that. 
that kind of stayed with him. Um, that kind of scepticism stayed with him. So, but yeah, he was uh, he liked golf, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, because he talks about in his early years he wasn't sure what he wanted to do, and um, he'd, he'd often say, "Oh, maybe I'll go into the law, or um, you know, into Parliament." And that was obviously a fleeting idea. <laughs> but uh, he is a very talented writer, um, and I think that's one of the joys, as you said. It's uh, although it's intelligent, it's very accessible. Um, it's not seeking to speak above people. It's truly engaging uh, yeah. with anyone and everyone. And I think that's it, that really comes through strongly. Um, and I want to read out um, the the first excerpt uh, from Glyn Davis's uh, essay here because it's probably what people are most familiar with, and it will um, remind everyone as to I guess uh, part of Donald's contribution, which is just lingers on, but obviously um, can be uh, read into in a range of ways. So I'll, I'll read it out. Australia is a lucky country run mainly by second rate people who share its luck. It lives on other people's ideas and, although its ordinary people are adaptable, most of its leaders in all fields so lack curiosity about the events that surround them that they are often taken by surprise. Now, if that isn't the most universal description of Australia, <laughs> I don't know what is. Obviously, it was part of a time, though, and a, a certain context. So, to me and, and to you, I'd like to, to talk about that contribution and that book because it was um, a significant uh, moment for him. What, um, what did you take away from The Lucky Country and also, you know, you, we've, it says in this book that um, it, it can often be I guess too reductive and and you pull out that excerpt and it doesn't necessarily represent all of what Donald was talking about in regard to Australia being a lucky country. So by no, by no means. Exactly. By no means. Yeah. yeah, so to you, to you and to Donald, what was he really um, seeking to say with the lucky country? Well, the first, I suppose the first point is that um, there's no overall theme in the book. There, there's lots of... Um, he described it as a, a sort of a, um, a series of essays with, with no with no continual theme. So, so the lucky the lucky country idea doesn't cover the whole thing, but it's kind of morphed <laughs> into a place where it does cover the whole thing. And and the original lucky country idea was uh, we couldn't rely on luck on question of where we lived, and with um, it was worried about China and communism. So. Um, being in Asia had strategic problems, but also it, it, it had potentialities. Um, you know, we should be aware of where we're living um, in the world and take advantage of it. And the other, the other um, question where we couldn't rely on luck was on the question of economic management. You know, the world didn't owe us a living, all that sort of stuff. And then, of course, you get the, the mining boom in the, in the late 60s, and it, it seems that, no... Uh, we can rely on luck, you know. Mm. Um, and but then, as it seemed, of course, that was that was sort of fool's gold. Um, so, so yeah, you have you have the idea of the lucky country covering those two specific um, areas in Australia, but it's kind of morphed. The phrases has sort of morphed with the rest of the book. So it it's kind of describing, I think, you know, a place where we can't rely on on being dumb. You know, we have to be smart. We have to recognise that there's more than one way of being an Australian. Um, you know, it's not lucky for everybody, all those sorts of things. Mm. 
Yeah, and he does describe uh, Australia and um, in the excerpt in the book, um, which is from the first chapter, he gives a snapshot of Australia in the 1960s and it is quite a a beautiful way of talking about it um, and very uh, illuminating in kind of a narrative sense, I guess. He talks about, you know, taxi drivers often prefer their passengers to sit with them in the front seat and sometimes tip them the small change. A person who doesn't like ordinary people to think they are as good as he is or to enjoy some of the things he enjoys himself will not like Australia. Yeah, yeah as much as you, as much as the, the lucky country, the book sort of had, had um, strong criticisms of the place, mm. you, can, you can read it as a, a sort of a, um, you know, a trip into, into what the place seems at the time, you know, good and bad. Yeah, and it's it, a realistic it, it, homage, perhaps. Sorry, what, what? A realistic, a realistic homage. homage. Yeah, well, and it, you can read The Lucky Country and you think this is a lot of simplistic generalisation mm. and, and people sometimes do that and then go back to it and, and think, oh, no, OK, he's, he's, he's writing about the way the place seems. Yeah. You know, he, he, he was a big fan of Gramsci and Gramsci had um, the idea of common sense as a, a kind of... Um, not common sense um, in the way that we use it, but a kind of a, a, um, a way of, of describing sort of generally accepted wisdoms. And a lucky country is, is um, a description of the common sense of Australia in the 60s. Mm. And this is, this is before he read Gramsci, so you can see why he is so warmed to, to Gramsci. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, and I want to talk about um, some of the kind of points that he makes. One I found particularly interesting was around um, planning and the difficulty of planning and how, um, you know, politicians and others seek to plan for things and it, it sometimes limits their vision and ability to, to do the right thing in a certain situation. I mean, that was particularly... Um, you know, poignant for me in terms of a range of issues that we currently face. Uh, yeah. What what was he really on about there? Well, it changed a bit. Um, to begin with, he was worried um, that any planning um, was um, could rationally be, rationally be achieved in the, to achieve the ends that you wanted to um, to achieve. And so he was a bit he was anti planning for a while. And then um, he sort of when he sort of became engaged again um, with the observer. He thought, oh, well, um, yes, it might be. Perhaps we don't get the, the, um, the, the ends that we were going to achieve. But, but, but not doing anything might also um, bring us um, sort of bad stuff. So, so he embraced some sort of attempt at rational policy. Um, and whether or not, of course, that was successful was, in, in a sense, beyond his control, beyond mm. planners' control. Mm. And he also, there's an interesting section on ambition, which is from a, an unpublished paper, um, which you, you write was pro- probably delivered in Sydney in 1959. January um, 1960, I've since found. Oh, right. Okay, there you go. So close, yeah. close. <laughs> <laughs> um, so from 1960, and he talks about ambition, and then there's an excerpt about excitement, and I, I've Book yeah. noted many um, sections in here, so it's going to be difficult to pull out one that's particularly um, great because they all are. But uh, he talks about the ambitious person and that there are many kinds of ambition and that it's also 
really, um, as he says, a dirty word. Yeah. Uh, and that he never really received any sane, healthy ambition instruction. And he puts those in capital letters, ambition instruction. Yeah. I mean, that's just a, a really interesting look at Australian society, I'm guessing. Yeah. It was really yeah. a commentary upon. Could you yeah. share more about that particular piece? Yeah. Um, well, because after after he wrote that, he, he then wrote his his, um, his autobiography, and he, he sort of abandoned that kind of psychological um, way of at things. But it, it stayed with him, I think. And the idea um, the idea of excitement and enthusiasm was one that was very much a hallmark of his his makeup, um, his ambition, if you want. Um, you know, he was a very enthusiastic person, and and yes, he had his setbacks, but then he'd sort of get back up, partly because he was interested in things anyway, also because he wanted to, um, you know, hopefully um, interest other people in those things. Um, yeah, because uh, he was, of course, he was writing that piece. Um, he'd been reading, because he did a lot of book reviews for The Observer, mm. and he'd been reading um, about uh, great people, great in the of time time great person of the of the year and he references and, stalin and hitler yeah, 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 yeah so so people who um have obviously had ambition mm. um, yeah but it's it's an interesting piece because you know to what extent when you when you do stuff are you doing it for the good of the world or are you doing it for your own personal um sort of satisfaction mm. and even if you're doing it for your own personal satisfaction can you therefore can you then also sort of hook it into something that's, that's doing good for the world? Absolutely. And that it draws out some of the uncertainty in life. Um, he talks about, uh, I'll read a, a section that I found particularly interesting and I think it applies to, to many, is that uh, he says, ambitions are closely connected to fantasy structures. <laughs> When the fluke opportunity means that the wrong ambition wins, this yeah. does not necessarily tell one much about the person concerned. Successful yeah. men, and I would say, obviously, he would also mean women. This is uh, in the pre-feminist uh, sexist language. Um, yeah. Written. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so successful men and women in their 40s are often characterised by a deep sense of failure and frustration which puzzles them in their 20s, puzzles yeah. others of, of a similar you know, type in their 20s. The explanation often is that the wrong ambition won and they yeah. don't know what to do about it. Yeah. I found that really interesting because he also then applied that to Hitler in a sense and said, oh, imagine yeah. if he'd just been an architect. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean... <laughs> Um, you know, it's, there's, there's a lot of chance that goes on in, in the world, isn't it? Um, things, things don't have to have come out the way that they did. Indeed, and I just think that he frames it in a way that just I have not come across, I guess, in, in the language well, he uses and the frameworks he's using there. Yeah. Is that his philosophical um, background? That was, well, that particular, what you just, it was something actually applied to him because he was, um, before he moved into the Observer, so he would have been 20, 36 when he started working on The Observer, um, he was successful in the sense that he was the editor of um, crappy, um, let it be said, a crappy uh, sort of easy reading type um, newspaper. So he was successful. I mean, he, he mm. wasn't rich or anything. He never had any money at that stage. But he was. He, he could be seen as successful. I and think yet, you said he was misemployed, was it? <laughs> word? Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah that's... Yeah, he was intellectually misemployed. Mm. Yeah. And, um, and of course, the, in a sense, the, 
because you know you, you, when you when you're stuck with a task, you want to you want to do it properly. So he, there were times in that in that sort of interregnum between um, university and, and becoming a um, sort of an intelligent critic in Australia, he just threw himself into things, pig farming, you know, briefly, uh, sort of easy reading newspapers. Um, so there was that enthusiasm, mm. but it didn't have that kind of, if you want, social awareness. Mm. Well, it's, he seems like uh, one of those people who, um, if you want to do something, you need to do it properly. <laughs> uh, yes and no. Yeah. Um, he, he, yes and no. He, um, you, you, you don't want the perfect to get in the way of the possible. So no. Particularly when he was writing, he would, would get stuff down on paper. Um, and he was a, he described himself as a dirty writer. So, mm. you know, just get something down on paper and, and perfection can wait for the next draft. Yes, and interestingly, when, when you talked about that, he said, you said he often would throw out tens of thousands of words and, yes. and his, uh, his wife at the time um, also assisted in editing as well, which is... Uh, his wife for, for a long time. That yeah. Was my yep. Second yeah, wife, was, was it? Um, sorry? Was that his second wife? That was his second wife. So, yeah. my family, my mother, yeah, they yeah. married in... In 1960, and and um, stayed married um, until Donald died in 2005. And what kind of relationship was that in in the writing sense? Yeah, um, we had a lot a lot of time to discuss this, but but I'll I'll I'll, I'll brief it up. Yeah. I'll make it brief. Yeah, um, I wouldn't say it was of the um, sort of um, Sartre de Beauvoir but, you know, sort of level. Mm. Donald was was very self confident. And and knew what he knew what he thought and and was sort of um, self-supporting in some ways. So so it wasn't it wasn't um, they weren't in a sense equals in that partnership. Their their relationship was was, was um, they got married in sixty in nineteen sixty. So it was in some sense pre well, it was a pre-feminist one. It um, the family stopped working uh, when they got married uh, in a paid sense, but. Um, sort of, uh, you know, she, she became very much an integral part of Donald's sort of editorial. Um, uh, he, he, and also, of course, McFarney did did to do a bit of freelance editing and, and reviewing. So it wasn't as if she wasn't doing some stuff. But but she was it was a it was a relationship that that had pre-feminist characteristics, but not not in a. Um, it's so complex describing. Um, different relationships, isn't it? Mm, it is. It was not not in a in a sense that she was unhappy with. She had a, a great indomitability about her, which was very necessary for Donald. Donald was a very strong character, um, and needed needed an indomitable woman. Donald, of course, um, was encouraging of women generally. Who, who associates he had at university? Um, he had colleagues, female colleagues. Um, who loved him and, and, and whom he encouraged and, and in journalism as well. So, mm. so his, his scorecard, if you want, um, on, the, on the feminist issue is, is a, a complex one. Mm. Well, it was also a time, um, obviously, it was right at the point when things were starting to change. So it's difficult to be, you know, anything but time, a product yeah. of your time. Yeah. Because well, Jermaine Greer wrote her book uh, six years after The Lucky Country and the Feminist historians were, were a decade after the lucky country, so... Exactly. So, uh, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, radical feminisms uh, in the 70s and, and mid-70s. Um, and I just want to touch on, um, finally, one of the sections, um, it's Chapter 12, which is Money Made Us, and he talks about uh, Australia's economic culture and yeah. uh, and the secular faith of growth. And um, the first, the first, I guess, sentence here is quite revealing of, of the broader issue, which is that he says, faith in economic growth was perhaps the most widespread secular faith in the world after the Second World War, affecting communist and third world countries, as well as the capitalist industrialised countries. And yeah. he talks about these new statistical measurements such as gross national product and and national, well, national income was the, the precursor to that. I mean, in that particular chapter and his his broader thinking on economics and the way that we we view growth what yep. what do you think um, he contributed in that sense to to the economic discussion and the culture that we have around growth because it still persists today yeah well yeah because um, he, he he came from a, a position um, up until up until the the, the stagflation of the 70s where he, he, he used his language was that of, 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 the, of the economic primer, you know. One of, and, and the lucky country was written at this time. So, the lucky country was um, we, we couldn't rely on luck to maintain our, our economic growth. So he, he came from a you know a sort of a, if you want an orthodox um, economic sort of background. But then, sort of the 70s, it seems like nothing's working. So so he. He modifies his thinking, um, and he, he he got stuck into economic fundamentalism, um, you know, and a, and a feeling that society is just an economy, and not you know not not the people that make up the economy. So mm. so, so 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 treasurers are yes concerned with the welfare, hopefully, of their people, but they're also concerned with with statistics. So if you can put one little um, group of numbers into a previous quarter or whatever, then that's as good as, as putting people to work, although it's not. Mm. So, so he, was, he was suspicious of, of, um, of, of economic fundamentalism, yeah. Yeah, and, and the funny part about it is that his last line is um, also quite revealing. He says, it may simply have been an oddity of history that for a while we could make a profit out of an economist, which yeah, he's talking yeah. there about uh, Keynes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure we're still making profits out of economists perhaps, but um, yeah. it's, it's really amazing to see how that, that economic thinking does pervade our yeah. discussion around really social issues that uh, need a lot more depth and nuance than just statistics. Yeah. I mean, he, he also said that econ economics was, was too important to be left to economists. To, to <laughs> to economists. And, and, and behavioural economics, um, which has sort of evolved since he died, mm. um, would be something that he might well have um, hitched you know, to ride with. Exactly. And uh, and just finally, I would be remiss of me to not mention his contribution in the arts, in particular being chair of the um, Australia Council for the Arts. Yeah. I mean, that was... He's still spoken of in a... a a really highly regarded way in terms of the way he prosecuted that role as chair. Um, when you were observing him and and his role there, what did what struck you about him and and the way that he operated? Yeah, yeah, because he was never politically tribal. Um, he never he never um, 
was a was a um, sort of a, a member of a political tribe. But I think with the arts, and I think particular in particular with his his um, engagement with the arts community from 1985, um, he had a six-year term as the chairman of the Australian Council. I think he he had a, a tribal affiliation to the arts community. He was his role as the, as the chairman was. I mean, there's, there's a certain amount of administration you have to do, um, chairing boards and that sort of stuff. But it was as an ideas person. So he he was out on the stump, um, uh, sort of prosecuting the arts. You know, whether whether or not the, the way you prosecute things has any effect, you don't know. But but uh, he was he saw he saw he saw the arts as important to uh, if you want economic viability. You know, the innovation that's involved in artistic endeavour. Um, is the same kind of thing that if you apply it to the economic culture, um, you know, hopefully good things happen. And that kind of thinking um, was around uh, in the Whitlam era, but it seems to have almost died um, in terms of our politicians' view on the arts nowadays. Um, do you think that uh, that we can revive some uh, some of the, what Donald has been saying about about the arts in this book. Um, he talks about uh, the the people involved in arts discussions and criticism, and um, I wonder if even some of that is still um, operating at the moment. The the way that um, people see uh, the the arts and artists, and yeah. what the artist's true role is is to be focusing on their art rather than um, hypothesising on certain areas. Yeah, um, you know, I mean, there's a lot of artistic endeavour going on, so so it, perhaps it doesn't make its way into the into what he called the public culture. Yeah, it's a very hard question to answer, isn't it? I mean, I mm. suppose all you can say is, um, um, I mean, it's not it's not just a question of top down, you know, sort of artists eking out their existence, uh, if you want, sort of doing their patriotic duty um, for the country. You know, of course we um, we all we all hope they do well. Exactly. Um, Nick, I want to thank you so much for um, sharing your experiences of your father as well as the writing in uh, that he's so many different pieces. And as you say, um, you can't put everything in. And, uh, and really, I'm sure it will spark people's interest to look into things further and to seek out more of his work and I know you're also um, doing some research on Donald yourself so uh, I'm guessing people can look out for that uh, in the future um, Well I, I want to put this one out to sea and then I, I want to have a holiday and I want to have a quick think and, um, and yeah you never know Yeah one day we'll get you back on at some point to talk well, it's about it. It's a pleasure talking with you, Amy, so that would, be, that, would be, that would be lovely. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I'll let people know that uh, if they're interested, they can seek out this wonderful book, Donald Horn, Selected Writings, which is edited by Nick Horn, um, who I've been speaking with, and it's out through La Trobe University Press. Thanks again, Nick, and have a lovely day. Thanks, Amy. Take care. That was Nick Horn, the son of Don- Donald Horn, the late Donald Horn, who is, uh, well, was and still is. Uh, his work exists and is universal in many ways today. And uh, and I highly recommend having a look through this book. It's just a delight. And uh, you can dip in and out of it because although it has um, some kind of, uh, there's definitely method there and structure, but it's certainly there for you to, to pick out areas of interest and to look into it further. So uh, do check it out. I have with me two fabulous theatre makers from Melbourne, Ella Caldwell, who 
who is a director, one of the co-directors of this play, Incognito, as well as Ben Prendergast, who is an actor, one of four in this play. Welcome, Ella and Ben. Thanks, Amy. Thank you. Hello. Hi. It's great to have you. I um, was very fortunate to see you, uh, Ben, and um, your work, Ella, on Saturday night, opening night, and there was a a great deal of applause, many rounds uh, (laughs) at the end, and well-deserved, I've got to say. And one of the things that really came through in terms of what people were saying afterwards um, in that lovely area where you can drink mulled wine and other things (laughs) was... Uh, that the the actors truly did a phenomenal job of switching characters so many times. I wonder if it was even counted how many character <laughs> switches you've made. Possibly not. But there's uh, there's 21 different characters, is my understanding. Yeah. Ella, I'll first start with you and the, I guess, the play, the background to the play and how it came about, um, how Nick, you know, wrote this play because I've been looking into some of what um, his inspiration was in some of his interviews and he seemed to um, find similarities between two very different events, um, one being Albert Einstein and his brain and um, it being taken or stolen, some people might say, by a a pathologist, um, the person doing the autopsy on Einstein. And then this other man who had really radical surgery to fix his epilepsy, which um, which clearly didn't really work, and it had other unintended consequences. And this is kind of a convergence of those two stories as well as another story. So I wanted to understand, you know, from as a director and your perspective when you're approaching something like this, which is a play from the UK and looking at what, what ties these plot points together how do you approach it and enter it because it is a really complex story it is yeah well look it's a great it's a great question amy because we spent a lot of time sort of exploring the different ways in which we could approach the play because as you say it's got these three very uh detailed and fully fledged stories within one um and the the key, which is something you just you just touched on there, the key is finding. I think for Brett and I, we we believed that it was very important to find the through line in terms of the emotional or kind of meaning for that we could always come back to for for the play, um, because it's it is very cerebral, it is very intellectual, it is often funny and kind of you know you've got to lean forward and really figure it out, which is such such a, a great sort of offering for an audience. Um, but we ha- we had to find the heart of it, and and I think that's that was really our key focus when we kind of decided on how we wanted to move into the process with the actors, to to kind of go okay, but but where is it really going to hit you in the guts, and what's Nick potentially really saying with this, with these three storylines, not only intellectually, but in terms of how it moves us or what it asks what questions it asks us and for us we really felt like the whole play came back to a a question of 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 how we give our lives meaning um and each character really is searching for that as most of us most of us are in very various ways so that was something that we came to um before we began rehearsals and in order to do that we allowed the three storylines to be workshopped and rehearsed 
independently. So before we spliced it all together, because as you know, it's kind of, as you said, it's like one moment in one scene and then you're somewhere else a minute later. So in order for the actors to really kind of be able to feel that whole journey as one of the many, each of the many characters they play, we did that independently before we put it all together again. Yeah, exactly. And, And they are from different time periods and locations and very different personalities. So that's a huge challenge I'm getting for an actor. Ben, um, you know, you're playing the, the the man who took Einstein's brain am- among many other characters um, mm-hmm. that you play. You also have some German accents thrown in there. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So, I mean, in your experience workshopping this with your fellow ensemble cast members, yeah. what was that experience and, um, you know, how did you manage those challenges and I guess embrace it to a point where it became a strength? I Well, I think... Um, because we are an ensemble, uh, an actor's ensemble, and the two directors here are, you know, original ensemble members, it was like a, a huge playroom, really. Um, you know, we all loved the script when we read it, and and, and um, Ella as AD. Um, when we programmed it, we loved the play. So, you know, when you come in there on day one and you've, you know, you know the play quite well, it's what, what are you going to throw at the wall and what's going to stick? So you're able to sort of stretch yourself as far as you want and you're in a completely safe environment. Um, and there's rigour. Like we can make mistakes, we can fall over as many times as we want and you're not... Sometimes when you get in with a new director, you sort of... Um, you can be a little tentative at first, which is, you know, what you want to quickly eschew and sort of... And, and with this family of artists, we don't have to worry so much about that. And then, you know, you bolt on the, the, the new sister in Jinx, Jinx Wan... Um, mm. And it, and it really does – it was quickly a family and with that comes the family arguments and the family laughs and the family, <laughs> like, fights and yeah. um, and to find the truth of what that what that family was and what this production should be. Um, and, you know, under Ella and Brett's, or as we term them, Brella, um, <laughs> under their guidance, we, um, you know, we were able to work within that environment and, and arrive at something that, as Ella sort of mentioned, is more about heart than about head – and you could you could very easily put a production of this up there that was tricksy or mm. mechanical or you know you're setting out to impress and look at look at the funny accents I'm doing or the or whatever and it's actually not about that at all and mm. I guess all of us you know with Kate Cole and Paul Ashcroft we really did have to marshal our experiences from other plays dare I say it in order to arrive um, at something that we could um, that um, is special because mm. you know. Yeah, there's 21 characters, and um, we switch between them so often. But we have to have, we have to find a through line, and we have to find a narrative, and we have to tell a story that works for an audience, and we have to tell it from the heart. So mm. um, it was a wonderful process. I feel like it, f- it finished last Saturday, and that's because it actually did. You know, we, <laughs> we put it up, and, and yeah. we still sort of we still are in discussions about the show. But um, yeah, we're really proud of where it's at. Yeah, well, you should be. And one of the things you're talking about heart and humanity and, you know, the characters to experiences, because as you say, it is cerebral and up there as much as it's down here in the heart. And, um, and I do, I did see perhaps some twinkling eyes and a bit of tears in certain people, including yourself. Mm. And then, and you had this moment. A really poignant moment, and then it goes switch into something else. How do you manage that? Like those little quick junctures where you're experiencing one emotion really strongly as an actor, and then needing to move straight into something else. Um, from from my perspective, you know, you, 
it's the trickiest part of this play because at one moment you might be completely distraught and then the next you're actually exultant. And how do you play that that switch? The trick actually is that those two emotions aren't that far removed from each other in terms of the intensity that they you know embody. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the given circumstances are that, that one thing is this really, you know, hard thing and this other thing is this really joyful thing and often those when you really mine those things are actually quite similar so what we found often in rehearsal and Alan might have something to say about this as well is that you know you you the 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 switch between scenes it kind of in a bizarre human way it feels so natural to switch from one emotion to the other Mm. um and so it does happen quickly whether you like it or not Uh, yeah that's great and well Ella so as a director then directing that and trying to facilitate the ability for that to happen, what were some of the approaches that you and Brett uh, took to, I guess, draw out um, these skills or or transformations between the scenes and also that really interesting um, modern element of the two women, the relationship that they're developing, because it is a quite strong and fascinating relationship that is brought into this. How do you manage that as well? Oh, look, that, you know, honestly, that storyline and that relationship was the thing that really hooked me in the first time I read the play. I just, I just fell in love with their, their journey and with Martha's journey and, and the kind of horrible humanity of wanting to do one thing and then doing it wrong and trying and you know falling in love and all and yeah. I just felt that it was it really and it, you know ultimately as you as you know having seen the play it really does have, have a, a significant impact on the rest of the storylines and vice versa by the end of the play so I, I guess that that storyline um was always something I was really really drawn to and focused on and luckily we have beautiful actors mm. you know in the play that you kind of jump in and and as Ben said uh, explore as much as you can before locking anything in really yeah. you know research and, and question and explore and play um, and with the the changes I mean again very very privileged to be working with such gifted actors but the, the journeys of doing the plays independently or like the, the storylines independently first allowed us to have some sort of idea of where that character might go were they not interrupted by one of their other characters? Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So that yeah. kind of was why I, we wanted to do do it that way to mm. begin with. Um, but then something that Ben pointed out really early on, which ended up being hugely significant to our production, is the way in which the 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 experience of one character feeds the experience of the next and really it's like once they step into that world that is the play the actors are holding and embodying and allowing to grow all of the journeys and each of the journeys kind of help the next one so even if it's a different emotion what we discovered quite you know really quite late because it's all it's all a process is that you 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 need to just kind of breathe and allow that to stay within you and take it into the next moment Mm. and 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 it becomes it's i think i think it's about as long as you can be in the moment and not preempting the change or mm. hanging back in the other version, you know, as long as you're in the moment, it feeds and it kind of keeps bubbling. And for instance, Martha's character starts in one place and the, the journey of her throughout the play is immense. And I would say that the journey of the other roles that she plays, like mm. Eloise and like Evelyn, actually all kind of feed into component to sort of 
into who Martha is and who Martha becomes. Mm. Sounds very complex, especially if you haven't seen the play. No, but it makes sense to me now you're talking about it because although, um, you know, we're talking about character changes that are very frequent, um, it's not disjointed. It doesn't feel like you have an abrupt change and you're wait- you want that to keep going. It feels like it's the right time and the right change and I think that's a really hard thing to achieve. Yeah, I think... That's- yeah, if you if you snap between those, it, be, it does become disjointed and we t- sort of take a leaf out of Einstein's book and look at the physics of it and you actually yeah. want to use gravity and you want to use the laws of sort of physics to sort of pull, draw you out of a moment and into the next in a sort of a very organic, natural way mm. and that seems to work. Mm. Right. It's really, yeah, that's absolutely right. And the other, the other thing about it, I mean, it's terrific writing, but the other thing is that we're very lucky to be working with some wonderful designers as well who play a big role in that. And, you know, the sweats, Pete Goodwin's, um, composition has has had a huge impact on how those transitions, if you will, kind of play out, as does the world in this sort of um, abstracted world that we're in that Chloe's, Chloe Greaves has created and Tom mm. Willis is lighting the way that sort of slides sometimes or is more abrupt sometimes to mm. support the energy the actors need. And, yeah, the, the music played, I think, um, a subtle but huge role in yeah. how we discovered that pretty much in previews. <laughs> really? I love it. Yeah. It's good. That's how a play should be, it's shouldn't a it? Keep growth. evolving. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you say that because the production, those elements, the lighting set costume, were very um, complementary but almost to the point where it enhanced it so much that you didn't notice it was there. Like you knew but it wasn't overpowering anything. It was very subtle. And I guess that's probably the point is so that you don't realise that you are being lulled into this world and that the the complex web of the black strings in the theatre I found like an an amazing and really great way to constantly remind yourself that you're in a brain. Yeah. Great, yeah. Yeah. It's good that you found that and that happens almost on your way into the theatre, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm. Is it also in the hall? Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that was Chloe's um, terrific design concept that we, we kind of, we did have to, you know, you ha- the, the play does require simplicity for all the complexities that it has. It kind of yeah. does. So, you know, en- enabling the actors to have this the space to to move and jump from scene to scene but still sort of having that strong metaphor. Mm. Um, yeah, the, the, the synapses of the brain sparking and joining across the length of the narrative. It's yeah. Those neural pathways. In fact, one of my characters who, you know, not to ruin anything, but has some, uh, an, an, I guess, an alternative viewpoint of the theatre... That's pretty obscure, but um, <laughs> he, uh, in one of the previews, actually manipulated part of the part of the set, and that was like completely wrong. <laughs> so we changed that because uh, you don't want to break that. What is that? Like a fifth wall? Almost, yeah, right? <laughs> it's like nice often, not again. Yeah, nice often. Don't do it again. <laughs> Definitely, and also, um, so one of the. Uh, female cast members Kate Cole plays a neuropsychologist or scientist, yep. and she is. Um, one of the, I guess, key interesting elements that brings some of these intellectual concepts together, which is how humans um, and their brains are connected in with their bodies and their identity and who they are and how they experience the world. And you mentioned how it's our brain 
um, plays tricks or it creates stories. And one of her lines is really quite illuminating of the whole play, which is about how it creates narratives. Mm. And perhaps they're not actually even that accurate. We don't really know. And they could evolve. Yeah, it steadies us from moment to moment. It creates a narrative. And that's kind of the function of, of drama almost, isn't it? It becomes equipment for living. Um, you, uh, you, Our brain sort of... Um, create a narrative from moment to moment there's no such thing as self there's no me there's no you um we're discontinuous and i'm not even my yeah, lines but yeah. that's what yeah. she said yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah and then the, the you know and the it's it's such an it's such a an interesting and in many ways depending on your perspective but very true um concept and the play kind of does unpack that and then the question from arthur is then why do you care so much about what this person feels or about how you so it's this constant kind of push pull between this idea which is that yeah the if you open up a brain and look at it it's there's no self-contained within there you know where Mm. is where is the self-contained and then if you don't have the memories that Mm. that you believe made you who you are or not many of them at least then 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 where does yourself come from so this constant search for for not only meaning day to day but also identity like how how do i identify as me and really is that just a big trick <laughs> you know it's mm. yeah. very dark it but is. then she but then still you care and yeah. you fall in love and you mm. and you and you follow passions and obsessions and so yeah it's good to have lots of questions is it this, hey? <laughs> <laughs> well i don't think it's supposed to really give you an answer necessarily it's meant to provoke you and think about things but one of the um i guess constant recurring scenes or motifs is um, between uh, the doctor, which would be you, uh, Ben, and mm-hmm. Henry, mm-hmm. Um, the the man who becomes progressively older. He gets to his 80s and yeah. um, and he his uh, memory is about 30 seconds long. I mean, yeah. and it constantly just has this, it's almost rhythmic, like when you, it brings it back to that scene and that repetition, and but it's still played in an, a different way, so it adds more to it, but it almost gives a bit of um, safety for the audience, I think, to know that it can come back to that and, you you know, there's a little bit of predictability yeah. in the play as much <laughs> as it's unpredictable and quite, you know, full on. And while some of our characters end, their storylines end tragically, others are sort of triumphant and, and maybe Henry's one of them and yeah. maybe Martha's one of them. And um, and he was based on a real man, Henry mm-hmm. Molesson, who had that pioneering surgery and he he remembered everything pre-1960 uh, or 1970 or something. Um, so he could tell you he couldn't tell you sorry before that he couldn't tell you that jfk was assassinated but he could tell you the date of the stock market crash of 1933 or whenever it was Mm. um and so he only had he had no memory um he only had his long-term memories he couldn't form new memories but interestingly he could form motor skill memories so he was able to develop drawing skills that he didn't even know that he had when he was retested he didn't know he'd taken the test previously but his brain was able to perform that function uh better and better each time even though he couldn't remember learning the thing yeah um because part of his i believe his hippocampus had been not completely disconnected but there were some issues around that but um yeah yeah fascinating how the and, and, and the kind of brain study that we've had to go into as, <laughs> as artists and how do we remember all those lines and all those other things. Yeah. Like, oh, okay, that's how you do it. Um, has been kind of helpful as well. Yeah, mm. totally. And the other, uh, I guess, character that would be relevant to bring up given you're here with us, Ben and Ella, is the um, the man who took the Einstein's brain because his motivations and, and the complex psychology behind his obsession with that brain is really still a bit... 
opaque. So I wonder from your perspective when you were trying to get into this and Ella, when you were also trying to figure out the meaning of what he was doing and why it was significant and, you know, what drove that character, how did you manage to open that up? Well, Ella mentioned it before, you know, it's about purpose and um, Viktor Frankl's great book, Man's Search for Meaning, talks about purpose being about, you know, uh, something you study or something you uh, postulate or, or your family. Thomas Harvey actually, in reality, chose one of those mm. and, and, and it wasn't the family <laughs> um, and re- and perhaps gr- regretted it. So his through line is he's obsessed and Nick Payne wanted to say that uh, and Einstein was of this sort of opinion as well that there was this mythologising of science and of heroes around science and Einstein didn't want his brain to be studied. He didn't. He didn't want it to be a Google. He didn't want. He, he wanted to be cremated, um, and that was kind of taken from him in in reality. And so, you know, Thomas was obsessed with the brain and and about perhaps even fame on, on some level because he was obsessed with other scientists. Um, but he himself was a, a pathologist and um, a real human in history. So we have to be respectful of that. And and he was obsessed with finding the truth. The great irony, from my perspective, is that despite having an entire career where he was trying to prove that. Einstein's brain was special and all of these um, people saying that it wasn't. Recently, he's actually been vindicated on some level. There's, there is something specifically special about Einstein's, um, the glia cells in, inside um, Einstein's brain, which, you know, this, this is, is an, an actor. This is an actor really defending their character. <laughs> <laughs> Being like, see, I was right. You know, I, I was, was right. Because right. <laughs> if I'm wrong, then it's probably going to be false. I love um, it. Anyway, yeah, yeah. That's the uh, complete <laughs> empathy. Absolutely. Exactly, yeah. 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 Great. And Ella, I want to ask because I've, I've went to see um, The Way Things Work. I went to see The Moors just recently. It was amazing. And now this play is phenomenal too. What on earth is happening at Red Stitch? Do you have something in the water? We have <laughs> Namely, in the water. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, it's truly amazing. And that's also what people were commenting upon in the, in the foyer outside is just constantly play after play you're doing such an amazing job like what is your secret oh thank you amy that's um that means a great deal look i i think the secret is the passion that everyone that comes into work there carries with them you know we i mean i we do we do sort of in put a huge amount of rigor into our play selection process and we we absolutely sort of have quite a um quite a, a an I guess collective approach to that. I've, I find the the plays usually sometimes ensemble members suggest them, but we but we we debate them and we discuss them. And we kind of like thrash it out why people love them, why they don't. And then for me, I mean, look, I think a lot of it is about the there's this wonderful ensemble who who are not only hugely committed to their craft and talented, but have a huge amount of love for the place. So anytime you walk into a room there, there's that. And then we work with great people, mm. you know, like Aidan who wrote and directed um, The Way Things Work and Stephen who... who um, directed Jen Silverman's piece and all the actors and designers that work with, with the ensemble. Mm. Uh, really, it's, it's, it's a matter of... Um, I think constantly remaining really, I think remaining open and push, and pushing out and reaching out, and and doing plays that spark us up and make us make us respond. Because if a group of fifteen ensemble members respond passionately, there's a pretty good chance that that the the 
the audiences are going to also be sparked in some way. That's true. The passion really does come through. Yeah, it's, it's a little yeah. bit like this place, isn't it? it yeah, you know, yeah. The, there's that passion that's involved around a particular art form and mm. um, and special things happen, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, congratulations to you both and your fellow ensemble members and, and co-director. Um, it's I highly recommend people see it and uh, and I wish you the best of luck for the rest of the um, season or chookers, I should say, is, is the better term. <laughs> Thanks, I'm very superstitious at chookers. <laughs> Thank you so much, Amy. <laughs> no worries. And uh, that was Ben Prendergast and Ella Caldwell from Red Stitch Actors Theatre in St Kilda doing amazing work as usual and their play at the moment is Incognito. It's written by Nick Payne and it's on until the 13th of August so please do get on down because it's just really wonderful theatre and and it truly, um, I think, illustrates the unique possibilities of theatre making and also the great acting um, and directing that we have in Melbourne. So do have a look. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRFM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.